good morning, Westmount. And we welcome you back to another divine worship service on a Sunday morning such as this. And I do trust that you have been encouraged and blessed as the service progressed through the songs, through the prayers, through the Lord's table that God has been ministering to your hearts once again. And as was said by David, if you're visiting, we welcome you and we do trust that you will be blessed in our service today. Today we're going to embark on a new book, First John, a very fascinating passage in the, in the, or an epistle, or a series of epistles rather, and what I want to do, and we will continue this as time progresses, is go through and see John refuting some erroneous teachings here, which we will get into. And John, in this epistle, or these epistles, it speaks of, and he speaks authoritatively about the truth of the incarnation. We sang about that multiple times this morning, the truth of the incarnation, Jesus Christ taking on humanity, taking on flesh. And this was a message that was doubt, causing doubt for the readers, and they needed to hear this. They needed to hear that Jesus Christ actually came in the flesh, took on flesh, God in human form, because the, the, the false teachers that he was refuting were presenting a teaching that was denying the full deity and even the humanity of Jesus Christ. So the epistle seeks to reaffirm the core of Christianity, saying that either we exhibit sound teaching, sound doctrine, and living in obedience to those teachings and those doctrines, and this characterizes the Christian life and the love that we ought to have for each other. When all the basis of faith are in operation, we not only know joy, but we can live a holy life. And we are assured of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. John talks about this in chapter 3, verses 19 and 24. This assurance comes, though, especially when we find ourselves and again, he touches on this in chapter 4, 7, and 8. This assurance comes when we find ourselves loving one another. Paul, John rather talks about that. A few things I want to mention about this epistle before we get into it. It's a general letter. And general means it's probably written, it wasn't written to a specific church like Paul would say to the church in Rome or to the church in Galatia, etc. It was a general letter, and it was perhaps written to the churches that were across Asia Minor. And you won't find the typical John, an apostle of Jesus Christ, like you would find in Paul's letter. You won't find any greetings, any salutation. He doesn't uh, mention the recipient name. He doesn't mention his name. 
It doesn't have any salutations in it. It is also a difficult letter. And difficult, you won't get the difficulty for those who, if you study the Greek language, the, the ancient Greek, Koine Greek, you will find that not only the epistles of John, but the gospels as well, the vocabulary is very simplistic. You can learn the vocabulary in the Greek very easily with John, and you can be able to read the old gospel and the epistles of John probably after your first year of Greek. But the grammar is very difficult. He's very difficult in the grammar. So the structure and the style of his writing, that's where the difficulty comes into place. But it's also a crisis letter. Again, it's written to deny or combat the deadly doctrines that were seeking to destroy the fellowship of the believers, written to refute a teaching that we know and that was, is known as Gnosticism. And this is a combination of Oriental mysticism mixed with Greek philosophy and sprinkled or dabbled with a little bit of Christianity on top of it as well. For Gnostics, their main thing is knowledge, not faith. Knowledge, not faith, um, is the only true test of fellowship with God. So, knowledge. And, and in one sense, we have to know. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. But their knowing or their knowledge goes to a different level or to another extreme. They taught that all matter, this is another thing that Gnostics taught. So it's all about knowledge. It has nothing to do with faith. Everything is knowledge, knowing. And their second major error of teaching was that all matter is evil. Everything that is matter is evil. And this led to two great errors. One was a practical error on the side of the believers, and one another was a theological error. The practical is that of the nature of the Christian life. The body, this is what you see here, is doomed, is destined for destruction, and in one sense that is true. While the spirit is independent of the body, and therefore incapable of sinning. And when you get to verse 9, which we will not get to tonight, to today, you see why John writes verse 9. If anybody say they do not sin, you're lying. This is why he writes that, because the teaching says it's impossible for the spirit to sin. This view led to two extremes. One is either asceticism which is the denial of worldly pleasures or the complete opposite. You just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow, you die. Licentiousness. And of course, the theological error is this view that all matter is evil. Because of this view, then there's no way God could embody, come in the form of humanity. That doesn't make sense because he's taking on evil. He's taking on matter, and that doesn't add up. That doesn't make sense. So what was their solution to this error? What was their solution to this? Well, 
it was like a phantom. It only looked like Christ or God took on humanity, but that wasn't the case. It's not true. So they thought that Jesus Christ was just a man, just like you and I. Nothing special about him. There is, he had extraordinary features as a human being, but he was just a man like you and I. And this teaching denies the virgin conception, the, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. And by default, denying the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus was quite the man, unlike any other human being on the planet, but just a mere man, nothing more. On the other hand, so on the one hand, Jesus was just a man. On the other hand, the Christ, the Christ, the heavenly Christ, as they refer to him, came upon Jesus Christ at his baptism and then departed right before he died, right before he was crucified. So this solved their problem of the evil. So it wasn't Christ that died on the cross. It was Jesus, that mere human being like yourself. That's the one who died on the cross, not the Christ. And according to them, he was not the son of God. Terrible and dangerous teachings. And you think, man, this is awful. This is horrific. But folks, let me remind you, this is the world that we're living in. They might not identify themselves as Gnostics or any of these erroneous but this teachings, but this is the world in which we live in today. And with these things in mind as to set the tone for why John penned these letters, as it said, a crisis letter, and you get a better picture why he put so much emphasis, and right off the bat, John said, I don't care about identifying who I am. This is how I'm going to begin. I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, this is Jesus Christ. That which was from beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen. And that's why he got right into the meat of the matter. What Didn't want to waste any time. Spoke about his incarnation, spoke about his deity. He is God. Yes, he came in the flesh, but he's still 100% God. He talks about sin, that yes, we sin as human beings, sadly, unfortunately, but there is also forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And he also talks about the significance of fellowship. And we'll get to that at the end of these four verses and how significant that is in the life of the believers. So as we make our way through this, these, this letter on these, for today, these four verses, we will be revisiting on occasion some of these errors as John refutes them. And today we'll be focusing on, as you see on the overhead, the word of life. And we will see how the reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ has and had and should have a major theological and practical impact on the life of each believer individually and corporately. John writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Why? So that, in order that, you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are, are, we are, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Father God, may you take your words and impact the hearts of all who hear, including myself. Lord, if there's any doubt whatsoever in any mind that are, is here this morning about who Christ really is, may this be an assurance to them that he is the Son of God who came into this world, took upon humanity for our sake to go to the cruel cross to sacrifice his life so that we can live. And Lord, may it serve as a reassurance to, to the believers, to us who act, absolutely holds fast to these truths of your word. For Christ's sake. Amen. So as I mentioned, John goes, dives right into it. He doesn't waste any time. And he starts off by emphasizing the eternality, the eternality of the word of life. And remember, one of the Gnostic thought was the denial that Jesus Christ, or the denial of Jesus Christ, that he came in the flesh and that he even is the son of God. And he sets out to make sure that he sets the record straight against such arguments. He was from the beginning, John says. He was from the beginning. And to appease the finite mind, John uses the same word in, for, in John chapter 1 as was read by Z for us. He was from the beginning. And it is important to note that John was not saying Jesus Christ was created or was a created being. That wasn't his point here. God has no beginning and therefore has no end, hence eternal, hence his eternality. What is this beginning that John is referring to? Know that John never says the word came into being. He presupposes, he purposely says that the word was, the word always is. Paul reminds us in Philippians 2 verse 6. That, that very, very potent passage where he's talking about the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Who being the very form, the very form of God, didn't think equality with God was something for him to grasp at. Why? He had it. He didn't need to grasp at something that was already his. And that's the same point that John is saying here. 
And John goes back to his gospel, but not only that, he jumps even further and goes back to Genesis 1, verse 1. He takes a step right back to the beginning. We are told in the beginning by Moses, God. Moses just puts it out there. And this is what theologians call presuppositional theology or presuppositional or apologetics. Moses wasn't setting out to prove the existence of God. Moses just makes a bold statement, God is. God exists. He exists. And this is what he did. And that is what John is doing here. He was from the beginning. He was from the beginning. John makes this very statement that Moses made. And he was there. Jesus Christ, this Christ that they're denying, the Gnostics are denying. The Jesus Christ that the world is denying today, folks, that isn't God. Or maybe he was a human being. Or maybe he was a very good, upright human being. But that's all it is. He was there when the words were uttered, let there be light. And I'll go even further and say he was the one who uttered those words, let there be light. A passage that was referenced in Jeremy's prayer this morning, and I invite you to turn there. Very, very familiar passage of scripture, first, or not first, Colossians 1, 15 and onwards. Paul again writing here. Same language that John and the same idea that John is presenting. He is the image, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created. So he was the one who said, let there be light. In heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. He holds all things together. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Folks, he was the one who said, let there be light. In John 8, verse 58, Jesus made a statement that caused the religious leaders and the, 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 the Jews, the Israelites, to, to stir up, to, to get them upset. And after he made these statements, they wanted to take up stones. In fact, they did take up stones to stone him. When he said, before Abraham was, I am. Why did they do that? Why were they so angry at this statement? Because they know that Jesus Christ was making a direct statement to Exodus 3. 14. And they thought, who do you think you are making such a bold statement, claiming to be the all-powerful, ever-existing one? 
these are just a few of the many passages of scriptures that I could throw at you that ascribes deity to Jesus Christ. And this, folks, is undeniable from a biblical standpoint. And yet, it was easy for this group. And yet, it is easy for the world to deny such truth. And frankly, today, as I mentioned earlier, some may not label themselves as Gnostics. Some may not call themselves that. But they hold to these erroneous teachings. And even worse, there are churches, and I even hesitate to call them churches, that hold to, to, to these teachings. Folks, for Christianity to be real, if Westmount hear me, for Christianity to be real, the eternality, the deity, the humanity of Jesus Christ is paramount to our belief system. Paramount. For without it, we are no different than any other religion in the world. If Christ be not God, our worship is vain. We can pack up and leave this building, sell it, use the money to give to charity or whatever it is you see fit. But this, what we're doing here, is absolutely and utterly pointless if Jesus Christ isn't God. Completely worthless and useless. We are clinging to a false hope of a future life if Christ be not God. Our efforts of striving to live this so-called Christian life is completely pointless. Christ would be deemed the biggest fraud in the history of humanity. If he be not God, because he claimed to be, the, the authors of scripture points him to be God. He would be the biggest fraud. The Bible may well be a phenomenal storybook, as some put it today. But that's just it, a storybook, a fictional one, for that matter. It makes God, the father, a liar. It makes disciple-making and witnessing pointless. In other words, everything that we sell ourselves out to do for the cause of Jesus Christ is worthless if Jesus Christ isn't God. I cannot stress how dangerous it is for us to stray from the truth of God's word. And it just takes one point for us to get and go far out into the deep, far out into the abyss, and then we look back and we wonder, how did we get here? How did we get here? He is the eternal one. Regardless of what people want to say, regardless of what people want to think, regardless of what people want to believe, Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. Full stop. Because the Bible says it, and that's all that matters. The word of life is the eternal word of life. But he was also made manifest. He became flesh. He took on humanity. Again, 
combating the teaching that it was impossible for God himself to take on evil because it doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense because all matter is evil. I'm placing an emphasis on both the eternality and the humanity of Jesus Christ. John refutes this. There can be no question that the apostle is referring to Christ here. That's undeniable. And thus, declaring that he passed out of, he came, he took on humanity, he came out of eternity into the limits of time and space. And this mystery that we just sung about, the Son of God, the God who said, let there be light, the God who created all things, the God that we just read about in Colossians 1, 15 to 19, came and took on humanity. I can see why they found it so hard to grasp. Why would God do that? But they missed the point of the incarnation, and that's why they derived at these treacherous teachings. The word manifest means to cause, to be seen, to show, to reveal, to disclose, or to be disclosed, to make known. To make known that which already existed. And that is important for us to, to understand. To make known that which already existed. So it's not something that appeared out of thin air. That John is saying, hey, this thing was not, but now it is. John saying, this, he always was, he is. And we're revealing him to you because you didn't know that he is and always is and always will be prior to him revealing himself to us. He became flesh, for the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, John said. We bear witness, and we show to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us in verse 2. These words are spoken of Jesus Christ. And a few things that are suggested here, again, as we touched on in the first point, he is eternal. But he also took on humanity. And that's what John is saying. Something that's a phantom or a figment of someone's imagination, you can't touch, you can't see, you can't handle. And if you can't touch and see and handle, what are you going to bear witness of? What are you going to tell people about? John was witness, and not just John, but so many, all the apostles, and there are undeniable witnesses that declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came, took on humanity for a purpose, for a purpose. And this is what John was declaring. So he came in the flesh. The eternal word of life came into flesh. He was manifested by taking on humanity. And John and his cohorts declared, made declaration and proclamation about the word of life. That which we have heard, that which we have seen and beheld, handled concerning the word of life, we declare to you. He is, was a real human being, folks. And that is emphasized here. The anti-Gnostic thought, the emphasis is that his physical, tangible was doubtless 
directed against reckless and unfounded claims of the Gnostics. And as mentioned before, these heretical teachers, they combined philosophy and superstition with just enough Christianity to make their system very dangerous. Denying the real incarnation, teaching that Jesus Christ, or Jesus, was merely a phantom, that he seemed to be a man, but not was, wasn't really a man, the Christ. And John, on the other hand, teaches that Jesus, the eternal God, clothed himself with human flesh, made himself real, and was seen by these men. John and others heard him speak. They followed him for three and a half years, saw him with their own eyes. They handled him. They ate with him. They, they suffered with him. They saw what happened to him in the garden. They saw how he was beaten and mocked and scorned. They saw how they deserted the Son of God who came to lay his life down for them. And John is saying, I am telling the world about Jesus Christ. And what the Gnostics are teaching is wrong. This is who Jesus Christ really is. Real witnesses. Real witnesses. These words that John uttered prove the reliability of the apostles which made their declaration more authoritative. They heard the audible voice of Christ. They looked upon him. Just think on it momentarily, folks. Why would John go through all this trouble? He already wrote a gospel account about Jesus Christ. And now writing three other epistles about a phantom being, about a figment of his imagination, why would he go through all of that trouble? Why would Paul desert himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees as he describes himself and write about a figment of imagination? Why would these men sacrifice their life? Why would Paul suffer so much in prison for a phantom or a figment of his imagination? Folks, the word of life is eternal. He became flesh. He took on humanity. That is abundantly clear in multiple scripture references. But he was made manifest. He was declared through the apostles and his followers that he is the son of God and he took on flesh. And you might ask, what does all of this mean? Why is it significant for me to know that Jesus Christ is eternal? Why is it important for me to know that he became human being? He took on flesh, being 100% man, 100% God. Why is it significant for me to know that John and others made him manifest, or declared him, proclaimed him to the world? What does that mean to me, you might ask? And that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked it. So the purpose of the declaration of Jesus Christ, why was he declared to us? Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also 
so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are witness writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Folks, it's for our practical purpose. It's for our edification, for one use of one word. The purpose why John is writing and will continue to write these things about Jesus Christ and declare him and proclaim him to us and to the world is so that we will be built up in our faith. The apostolic witness was given with compassionate concern for those who heard it. And he'll refer to them as my little children, my dear children. A very, very endearing term as a father to, to a child. That which we have seen and heard, we would declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. Those who are really in divine fellowship cannot be satisfied while others are out there living a life outside of Jesus Christ. John realized that. I'm writing so that you can enjoy the fellowship that we're having. You can enjoy and be a part of this. We prayed about that this morning before the service began, that others will want to join the choir and join the chorus and be a part of the family of God. And John is saying, I have to write this to you. And for those who are in doubt, who are still on the fence, whether it's Gnosticism or the real Jesus Christ, I want you to know that you can have real and complete fellowship. Spurgeon says this, and I love this quote, having found honey, we cannot eat it alone. Having found honey, we cannot eat it alone. And he says, continue to say, having tasted that Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Son of God, the eternal one who was made manifest in the flesh, who was proclaimed by John and his followers, having tasted that he is gracious, he is merciful, he is compassionate. We cannot but share that. Cannot but share that. Everyone who thirsts, let them come and drink. Let them come and drink. If you don't have money, come, buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money, without a price. He came, folks. He was declared the Son of God so that we can have complete fellowship. And John uses this expression here, and it's a very strong one, and it denotes, conveys an enjoyment of fellowship rather than the mere fact of fellowship. And that is what Christianity has dissolved into over the past, and I wouldn't even say three and three years because of the pandemic, because it always has been eroding where we're getting more comfortable sitting at home and I can enjoy the sermons online, however it is, whether it's audio or visual or whatever it is, and that should be enough. I can see 
my brothers and sisters online and say, hi, how are you, superficially, and that's fellowship. That's the culture of the church in which we're living in today. And John is saying, no, that's not fellowship. That's not fellowship. Here's the meaning of the word fellowship. A close mutual association. Close mutual association. Thus, in the context of the statement, we are proclaiming this to you so that you will have and you will continue to have and continuously enjoy fellowship with the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's something that is to be desired because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Fellowship is one of the great words of the New Testament used over 20 times. And four of them are found in 1 John. It calls to mind a tremendously important truth. Namely, that the Christian life, hear this, is not lived in isolation. That the Christian life cannot be lived in isolation. Barrett wrote these words, the greatest revival needed today is a revival of the sense of the importance and value of church, of church life to the individual believer. Let me repeat that. The greatest revival needed today and this was some years ago, and it still holds true today. The greatest revival needed today is a revival of the sense of the importance and the value of the church life to the individual believer. How important is this to you? That's what the, a question that can stem from this statement is asking. How is this gathering important to you? How important is this to you? This fellowship extends beyond human interaction. Because John said, for indeed our fellowship is with God the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And the thing that annoys me with Christians is nothing else matters than me just spending time with me and my God. Have you ever heard that term from Christians that are tugging on the, 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 the train of Jesus' garment because they seem like they're that close to God. That's the only thing that matters is that I'm having relationship and having fellowship with me and my God. As you get into this book, what you find is John is saying the relationship and the fellowship that you're having with your brothers and sisters, if, if it's not good on this level, it's not going to be good on this level. He makes that abundantly clear as you go into the text. He says the fellowship that you have with God is a reflection of the fellowship that you should have with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the fellowship that you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ is the fellowship that you're having with God. It's mutual, folks. It's not one or the other. And that's why he goes in to say, which we'll not get into today, but he said, if you say you have fellowship with God, and you want nothing to do, I'm paraphrasing, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're lying. You are a liar. Because that doesn't exist in Christianity. You might find it in Gnosticism. You might find it in the secular world. But a fellowship 
with God outside of fellowship with the brothers and sisters in Christ is unheard of in Christianity. It extends beyond human interactions. What does that mean? Whatever your fellowship looks like with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you can cover coat it all you want, you can stained glass masquerade it all you want, that's the kind of fellowship you're having with God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. That's what John's saying here, folks. That's what John's saying here. Have complete joy. This statement echoes what John himself wrote in, in John chapter 15, verse 11. These things have I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy may be full. This joy, John is saying, will be made permanent, made complete. But I want you to know that the clause for this full joy again is our fellowship with each other. John couldn't make it more because the Gnostics were teaching that the life is lived individually. The life that you're seeking to have a higher knowledge of Christ is an individual life. You don't need your brothers and sisters in Christ. And John is saying that's couldn't be, that couldn't be further from the truth. Couldn't be further from the truth. We cannot, folks, Westmount, we cannot alienate ourselves from the church and expect that we will experience this kind of fellowship with each other and with God. It won't happen. This prologue that we just looked at deals with the important themes which should and ought to be preached and taught. These verses establish the historical nature of the Christian faith. Christianity is not just based on someone's opinion or subjective judgment. It is built on the solid foundation of eyewitness testimonies. Clements wrote, the writer was one who had been brought into close contact with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who made himself initially known to him and who had associates in knowledge and a fellowship with Christ. John was an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He also lived and worked among others who were eyewitnesses. And he is and was proclaiming what he and others have seen and heard. The verses are these verses also establish a firm connection between doctrine and fellowship. A firm connection between doctrine and fellowship. In order to practice or participate in the Christian fellowship, one must understand and accept the doctrine of Jesus Christ. In other words, those who do not accept the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus Christ took on humanity while being fully God, cannot and should not be accepted as a part of the Christian, the true Christian church. 
John isn't saying that we have to believe on every minute detail when it comes to secondary or tertiary doctrines. But the foundational doctrines, the undeniable doctrines of scripture, especially when it comes to who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us. You can't be a Christian if you deny that. You can't be. This is an exclusive message that is difficult for many moderners to accept. Living as we do in an age which emphasizes religious tolerance and acceptance. Many people teach that any belief should be and ought to be accepted as long as it's sincere. But they mean well. It's from the heart. Well, if it's not from the Bible, it shouldn't be accepted. Burge writes, within the pews of American churches, and this is a sad statement, two-thirds of the people do not believe in the exclusive character of the Christian message. Two-thirds. And almost half of all evangelicals say the same. John emphasizes that Christianity is historical. Christianity, Christianity is doctrine. Christianity is faith. It's faith. It has historical roots, and it is built on the proper understanding of who? The life and work of Jesus Christ. The word of life. He is eternal. He became flesh. He took on humanity. John and others proclaimed him to society in which they live. And by default in writing the scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit proclaims him to the world. And folks, because of what Jesus Christ did, who he is, that should spur us on to live the life that he has called us to live. To have fellowship with one another. To proclaim him to others so that they can be a part of this fellowship. So that they can be drawn away from the errors that are floating out there. And there are so many, are they not? And tell them that Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. Sent to earth, came to earth to redeem mankind, to redeem us from our sins. And although we live in this frail humanity that still struggles and will continue to struggle until either death or he returns for us, we should strive to live perfect lives for Jesus Christ. But John says, you will sin. That's an a, a unfortunate state, and it's, but it is what it is. It's reality. You will sin. However, if you mess up, if you slip up, you have an advocate. And Jesus Christ forgives, he cleanses. But that's not our license to sin. That's our license to live free in Christ. He is, folks, the word of life. And I trust that you have been reminded of who Jesus Christ is. Don't listen to what the world is pushing at you about who he is or who he might have been or who he's not. A friend of mine, and I'll end with this illustration, 
had a friend who was a teller back, this is back in Jamaica. And he went to the teller and was like, how can you tell the difference between a real note and a fake note? Do you study the fake notes? And the teller's response was, no, I handle and touch the real thing so much so that as soon as the fake one hits my hand, I know it's fake. You don't need to study Gnosticism. You might say, man, Paris, that was awesome. I, I want to go more and know more what these guys believe and teach. Study the word of God, folks. Stay true to the word of God. That's what you need. There's nothing wrong with having added knowledge about these groups. But you don't need to study them. Study God's word. And that's what John was saying. This is all you need. Learn about Jesus Christ. Study his life. Live the life that he wants you to live for his glory and for his honor. Father, thank you so much for these reminders of who Christ is to us. And as a result, who we ought to be in our living for him. And may that spur us on, Lord, to live the life that he has called us to live. And again, we pray for the wandering heart who might be perturbed by what they're hearing out there in the world. May you reassure that heart of who Christ is according to your word and your spirit. And we pray if there's somebody hearing this and will hear this message that isn't saved, that isn't a part of the fellowship that John is inviting them to be a part of, that they will surrender their knees, surrender their lives to Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. For Christ's sake.